Hey, Village family, this is Nathan Brown. Uh, wish I could be there with you today. Unfortunately, this is what we're dealing with this morning. Uh, I am currently, hopefully, preaching at uh, Village East at those gatherings this morning. And unfortunately, Andrew Elder, who is our pastor, uh, he was planning on being there today. He had prepared the sermon uh, for this week, but unfortunately, he's gotten sick and is unable to uh, preach this morning. And so, unfortunately, we're dealing with this this morning. So I hope you brought your popcorn and, uh, and we can have a good time together this morning. Um, you know, there is a phenomenon uh, that has taken place in the United States about a decade ago. And I'm so grateful that for the most part, um, you guys here have uh, avoided the, it's just absolutely mental, let's just be honest. Of course, I'm talking about the gender reveal, um, which has taken America by storm. Everyone has lost all of their sanity. It has just become incredibly crazy as everyone tries to one-up one another when they're having a child. Um, and if you're not familiar with what a gender reveal is, it's, it's this cute little time where mom and dad get together, have their friends, and they cut a cake open. Um, and they find out if they're having a blue baby or a pink baby. Um, and so that's what it started out as, but it's definitely changed in the last few years where everyone has tried to find creative ways, fun ways, um, to outdo the great American tradition, the great American tradition, of course, of outdoing everyone in the whole world. Um, and because of social media, everything has gone kind of crazy. And so in the last year alone, we find that there's actually been a lot of deaths uh, that have been associated with gender reveals, which makes absolutely no sense, but it's true. Um, you can look it up for yourself. In fact, uh, two pilots were killed last year as they tried to uh, emit smoke from their plane, and their plane crashed, and they ended up uh, dying. There was a father-to-be who was excited about the birth of their child and basically created his own device in his backyard, and, and the device went off, killing him instantly. He wasn't able to enjoy the birth of his child. The, I'm sure there was great mourning with his family after, obviously, such an exciting time met with great catastrophe and sadness. And in California last year, there was, you might have heard of this, there was an episode where a family got together to celebrate uh, their, their child. They had an explosion that went on outside, and then the grass caught fire, and then they couldn't put it out, and it just kept spreading. And it took over two months for them to contain and put out the fire. Over 22,000 acres of land were destroyed, $8 million of U.S. Uh, estimation of property damage there, and a, a firefighter was killed trying to put out the blaze. Americans have completely lost their mind. Be grateful uh, that you are not among that number. Um, today, we're actually looking at the good and better uh, gender reveal. I can, I can almost hear you groaning uh, from the screen at this moment. Um, and while today we're, we're mainly looking at Mary here, we're also looking also at uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth and their story as well, because it all kind of intersects um, in our passage here today. So we find out today through our scripture reading that Elizabeth and Zechariah, they were a God-fearing, just a righteous couple. Zechariah, we know, is a priest in God's temple there in Jerusalem. And Elizabeth, we find from the text, is that she is barren. She's unable to conceive. She's older. Uh, she's, she's already kind of gone past menopause, and so she's unable to have any children. And so they had been praying for many years, praying, God, please let us have a child. We want a child so desperately, and yet silence. These years pass. And finally, Zechariah, one, one day, is serving in the, the temple there in Jerusalem at the altar of incense, and it says that he's by himself, and all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears, Gabriel. He shows up, 
It says, fear not, I've got a message for you. It's from the Lord, and that's this. God has heard your prayers, both from you and your wife, and you are going to indeed have a child. It's going to be a son. And this son is not going to be like any other child. He's going to he's going to have the Holy Spirit in his in his in his body, and he's just going to be a prophetic presence. He's going to proclaim the goodness of God and prepare God's people for uh, the Messiah. And this child is going to be very unique. We know that. And so, in in many respects, we know that this story is an old one. It's forged into the ancient uh, into the memory of ancient Israel. Um, an elderly, righteous, barren, godly couple waits for the Lord, waits on his perfect promise um, for it to come to, to, to fruition. Their patriarch and matriarch, Abraham and Sarah, were the same thing. They, they were an older couple who had waited on the Lord. And finally, after many, many years, they see the fulfillment of God's promise. They see the birth of their child, Isaac, the, the child of promise. Yes, he's going to be born. And yes, this, this child, John, is going to be born to a, a, a couple who's passed the, the years of childbearing. We know that. But in this, the son's going to be unique. He's going to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy, which says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway to our God. And while it is crazy, yes, a, a barren couple can conceive. We see this multiple times in Scripture, where a righteous barren couple completely trust in the Lord that he's going to give them a child. We see this in, 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 in Sarah, obviously, but we also see it in Rebecca and Rachel and uh, Samson's mother and in Hannah. We see this multiple time, time again. But yet something new is happening. We see that. We know that. In this moment, the old and familiar uh, is going to be eclipsed with something new, something that's never happened before. It's going to be quite scandalous. This is going to be different because a son of promise is going to be uh, not be is, is not going to be birthed out of an elderly couple. This the, the true son of promise is going to be born out of something much more unlikely, much more impossible. It's going to be through a virgin. And another story here is going to be told, not of a great patriarch, not of a great prophet, but of a but of a son who's going to reclaim the throne of David. It's going to be God incarnate himself, Emmanuel. God is with us. And through Jesus, the old is going to pass away and everything is going to become new as as the long-awaited day of the Lord is finally going to arrive. And last week, you may remember, we went through in Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. We know that Mary is greeted by the same angel, Gabriel, um, that met with Zechariah there in the temple. And we, we, we can't lose sight of this. In verse 38, immediately after hearing the words from the angel, she says this, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And, and Mary's response here calls uh, for our attention. Because when she says, let it be, it's not that she's, she's willing to do anything. She's, she's, not, um, she's not a passive participant. Instead, what she's really saying is, let what you have said be done, be done to me. She wants, she's, she's wanting and willing to be an active participant in what God is doing. And that what, that, that's the same call that Christ is, is asking for his people to actively participate in what, his, what he's up to, in his kingdom work. And although she doesn't fully comprehend what's taking place in the sense that she knows exactly 
um, how this is going to play out. She does walk out this kind of self, uh, sorry, kind of a, a semi-comprehending surrender, I'll call it. Mary doesn't fully understand what is going to take place, but she does know God. She, she does have a walking relationship with God. She knows the right thing is to trust him fully because he is worthy. She knows his character. She knows that he is one who keeps his promises. And so Mary here, she's the epitome of true faith because she trusts fully in something that she hasn't yet seen the, um, the fulfillment of promise. And that's something that we must soak in today. That must, that's something that we need to ponder on today, that we must fully believe in God's promises, even when we lack clarity. That we must fully believe in God's promises, even when we lack clarity. Because um, Mary here, she's, showing, she's truly showing the way to follow Christ. She's truly showing that, that that requires complete trust. I can think of so many times in my life where I, I felt like the Lord has stirred me to do something, to say something. And oftentimes, I don't have a full explanation of how do I accomplish that happening. There's been points in my life where the Spirit of God has stirred and I have been asked to do uh, something. And I'm at point A and the Lord is asking me to get to point Z. But you have to understand there's points B through Y that I have to get through. And I don't have a clear, oftentimes, uh, here, here's, here's how you're going to do B, here's how you're going to do C, here's how you're going to accomplish D. Um, oftentimes, that's not how God works through his people. He gives us how it's going to end up going, and he asks us to trust him on the journey to that point. As, I, as Habakkuk 2 verse 4 says, that the righteous shall live by what? By faith. The righteous are going to live by faith. And that's what God asks of his people. Perhaps today God has asked you to do something. What is that? Is that to foster or adopt a child? Is that to serve in the children's ministry? Is that to work with a ministry that, that, that tries to help uh, solve the problem of tackling uh, sex trafficking? Is it to start a business? Is it to begin a new career? Is it to serve uh, in a, a food bank ministry? Is it to church plant? Is it to move your family to West Belfast and, and participate in what God is doing there? Is it to serve refugees who are, who are leaving their war-torn countries? What is it? What is God specifically asking of you? Let me just encourage you, don't run away from that. Don't get so busy that you, that you miss out on what God wants to do through you in that journey of faith. Trust in him in that. You won't have all the answers all the time, but the righteous, they're, what are they going to live by? They're going to live by faith. And that's what the Lord is asking you today. Maybe today you're struggling with that. Uh, maybe, maybe you would say your faith is wavering. It's hard for you to trust in God. And let me just encourage you with something that Christ says. He talks about this, this concept of mustard seed, just having faith like a mustard seed. A mustard seed is, is just a speck, a small little tiny seed. And through that seed, once it finally gets in the roots and the soil and begins to grow, it becomes a, such a large, massive plant. And that's what God does. If we can just have a small little crack in which we allow our faith to trust in the Lord completely, God can use that in us. 
And he can allow us, because as we see that little bitty bit of faith, as we allow the Holy Spirit to, to answer that, that prayer, and we see God at work, what does that do? It builds on faith. Faith is steps. You, you, as, you, as, you, as you grow in your faith, you're, you're growing in your trust of God. And you continue to, to know that God is a God who, who keeps his promises. And as such, we can trust on him. And so as we begin to take that little tiny step of faith and we see him answer those prayers, then we can move on to, to the next step of our life where we can see greater faith develop within us. Trust in him and his goodness. And Mary here, she believes the word of God. Um, you know, she believes that, that the, this child, he's, he's taking on flesh, that he's going to be Emmanuel, God is with us. She believed that. And in this belief, she decides that the next step that she needs to do is to go visit her relative Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth uh, did not live around the corner. We have to understand that you know, Mary lived in Nazareth. Elizabeth lived outside of Jerusalem. And so this is about 100 miles of travel. 80 to 100 miles here. And so this would be the equivalent of essentially traveling from Belfast to Dublin. It would take a few days if going by foot, maybe three or four days to travel. And this is rocky, very hilly terrain. It would not have been necessarily an easy travel for the young woman. And uh, Mary and Elizabeth, they hadn't communicated with one another. This is obviously before social media, internet, electricity, phones, all of that. And so they didn't have the information about one another. But it's very important for us to, under for us to understand um, what did Elizabeth know about Mary, and what did Mary know about Elizabeth? And here it says that Elizabeth, we know that she she understands that her child is going to be a great prophet. And what is he going to do? He's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. That's all she knows. She doesn't know who the Lord is. She doesn't know who is uh, going to bear this Lord. She doesn't know. She doesn't have all the information. And what does Mary know about Elizabeth? Well, that was just given to her by, by the angel Gabriel in verses 36 and 37. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And so Mary here, in faith, she goes and visit, visits her cousin Elizabeth. And I can't imagine, imagine what was going through her mind over that journey several days by herself, I'm sure that her mind was racing. Uh, thoughts that every parent would have of, of, of am, I, am I good enough to parent this child that I've been given? And then also, I'm sure she was thinking of the words of the angel Gabriel. I'm sure she was, she was contemplating the, the Old Testament prophecies in which this child that she would bear would fulfill. All these things are racing through her mind. I'm sure she had a difficult time resting um, every evening when she went to sleep. And so Mary, in faith, she, go, she goes and visits her cousin Elizabeth here. And I, I, again, I can't imagine what she was thinking, what, what she was experiencing that moment. But we just know that in faith, she goes and visits her. She submits to the will of God. And she knows that she's going to have a hard situation because of this. She's an unwed mother. She would be ruined socially in her culture and her society because of her not being married and having a child. Because if she says that this is uh, that she's still a virgin and that she has this child, everyone is going to see her as either a liar, or they're going to see her as morally bankrupt as a whore. And so this is a just a, a terrible situation that she finds herself in. But despite all of that, she trusts in the Lord. 
And we can see, if you look up to this point, there's not really any joy or excitement in her words, in Mary's words. We just know that she's willing to do what God has asked of her. In the face of, of stigma, in the face of disgrace, she's going to trust in the Lord completely in this. Man, what great faith. What great, incredible faith. Mary shows up at Elizabeth's house. And in verse 40, uh, there's some things that we should note here. In verse 40 and 41, in verse 40, it says that she, Mary entered her house of Elizabeth and she greeted her and she was six months pregnant. And from Mary's perspective, you just have to know, man, she's, she just is overjoyed with faith. She's just overjoyed with excitement because the words of the angel Gabriel, the words of God were true. And so by connection, if that was true, I know what was spoken to me about me was true. This was, this was to help me in my faith. And so you just see her just begin to grow in her faith. But something very unique happens here. You can't miss this. In verse 41, it says that Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting and John, who's in utero, is in her belly, kicks. Now, that's not abnormal. I mean, babies kick. That's what they do when they're in the, in the womb. You know, six months along, absolutely, that baby is going to be uh, moving around and kicking. That's normal. But Elizabeth knows something is very different here. Uh, because she's reminded of what the, the angel had told Zechariah, her husband. In verse 15, it says this, that he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And so Mary, uh, Elizabeth here is just filled with the Holy Spirit, and she is filled with discernment. She's filled with insight, and she's able to discern something that her own logic and her own eyes would not have been able to figure out. Because Mary, you, you must understand, Mary is only a few days from conceiving this Christ child, Jesus. She's only three or four or five days in. Like she is not, she doesn't have a baby bump. There's no way that Elizabeth would have known that. It was only through the Holy Spirit speaking to her that she was able to discern that. And then she says this in verses 42 through 45: Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Elizabeth, you have to understand, she's experiencing so much joy. She's waited her whole, whole, her whole entire life to have a baby. How imagine, I, can, I can begin to imagine how excited she is. And yet in this moment, she is completely, completely swallowed up by the greater joy of what God is doing here in Mary. Completely. She's so excited. She's so overjoyed by what's taking place. And Elizabeth's words here, they're quite striking because essentially she's saying, I can't believe I've been given the gift of the Messiah, of the mother of the Messiah coming and visiting, visiting me. What a high honor that is. And this, we, we must remember again, this is Mary. This is insin insignificant Mary. This is teenage Mary. She's probably 12 to 15 years old. She's unwed. She's impoverished. And, and yet Mary here, her words here, you also must notice that they're almost very Trinitarian as well because she's, she talks about the Lord has spoken uh, these words to you, given you this promise. But she also says the mother of my Lord, she, she sees that the Lord is in her. Well, is, is, is the Lord the one who speaks the promise or is the Lord who is in her belly? 
and it and it's both here, right? You know, you must notice that she's she's indicating that the father is God, the one who gave the promise, and also the child, the son, is going to be God as well. And so, we we see these words, and in addition, you. you Again, going back to Mary, what she's experiencing, she's thinking of the words of Gabriel. She's thinking through all the, the, the last few days' journey and all the she's been able to process. Uh, she hears this great, she sees Elizabeth with a, with a large baby bump. She's so excited. And then she hears these words. And we have to believe that everything just clicks with Mary in this moment. She gets it, she understands, she understands what is taking place here. Her eyes are completely open. The, the, the supernatural is becoming natural. The immortal is becoming mortal. The unapproachable has approached us. The invulnerable ha- has become vulnerable here. The strong one is coming in weakness. The one with all the riches it's going to be coming. Is it going to enter this world with nothing? She gets it more clearly than in any time in her history in the last few days. And this is the moment that we experience the joy, the pure joy, the bliss, the, the thankfulness. And she just, what happens here? She just bursts into a song of praise. Let's look more closely at this song here, starting with verse 46. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations are going to call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. My soul magnifies the Lord. This, this song here by Mary is called the Magnificat. That's where uh, in the Latin, the, the word for, for magnify is called Magnificat. And so she begins to just declare the goodness of God through this entire experience. Gives him a very lofty praise. I think she's echoing uh, Psalm 34, uh, one, verses 1 through 3 here, which says, I will praise the Lord at all times. I will constantly speak his praises. I will boast only in the Lord. Let all who are helpless take heart. Come, let us tell of God's greatness. Let us exalt his name together. We must ask ourselves this question. Are we praising God for what he's doing and what he has done in our lives? Are, are we, are we, I just feel like we don't do that in a, in a very good fashion. Are, are we praising God for what he has done uh, in our lives and what he is currently doing in our lives? In verses 47 and 48, uh, Mary goes on uh, specifically to praise God for what he has done specifically for her. That he has saved her, raised her up from obscurity. It says this, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations are going to call me blessed. Uh, Mary knows the great publicity, the notoriety that she will have for the rest of time because of this child, Jesus. She begins by praising God for who he is, for his character, for his mercy, for his goodness in his life. Uh, and that's something very typical I've learned in, in Irish culture specifically. Uh, when, when someone 
here is winning at life. I mean, they are just knocking it out of the park. They have done something amazing. Uh, maybe they've won the Nobel Prize or they've won an Olympic medal. In fact, you saw that this summer when uh, some Olympians won some Olympic medals. What happens? The news crew shows up. Do they interview the person who won the medal? Absolutely, absolutely not. They don't do that. They go to their mom and dad's house, right? They're going to go and they're going to interview the parents. And the parents, of course, are just bubbling over with joy. They're so excited. They're so proud of their children for what they've accomplished, right? As we look at these verses here, like you, you know that. like She's just overjoyed because she knows that this child is very special, obviously. That he's going to change the entire system of the world forever. What a high honor. And if we're, as we're looking through these verses here, I, th- I think there's actually some things that we can really take away from regardless of our background. Whether you come from a Protestant background, maybe you come from a Catholic background, there's some things here that we can really glean from. For Protestants, let me just say, there's this weird fear. I, I, that's the only way I know to describe it. There's this weird general fear of reading too much about Mary because of its connotations with with Catholicism, which if you think about it, it's just kind of weird, right? Because we don't read Moses or David and, and get really nervous that we're going to become Jewish, right? It's just, it's, just, it's just not a thing. It's silly that we think our, our faith can be so fragile that we can't spend some time hearing what God is doing through Mary here in the scriptures. It's, it's something that I think we as Protestants, we can do a lot better job with because we must see Mary as more than just a compliant womb. She's not just filling a void where, well, somebody's got to give birth to this kid. Like, no, we have to see uh, the specialty of this experience. You know, the, the scripture here in verse 48 says, all generations are going to call her blessed. Because when we, when we just kind of skip over this section, maybe if you feel uncomfortable with that, um, we're, you're really missing out on her story and her perspective. Because who else knew Jesus better than any, anyone else in the whole world? Her, his mom, Mary, Right. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of the accounts that we wouldn't know from Luke and Matthew if it wasn't for Mary giving us, giving us an explanation of, of, of Christ in his early life. Mary has something to teach us. She has something to model for us. She has something, she has a faith that we should, we should emanate, ominously. that we should, we, we should try to copy almost and, and, uh, follow. Just follow her example, man. We, we have so much to gain from her. Um, and for Catholics, if you come from a, a Catholic background, let me just encourage you with, uh, with this thing and just, have, just meditate on this uh, aspect of this as well. In verse 47, it says this, My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My Savior there. Mary, we, we must realize Mary isn't perfect because only perfect people need a Savior. Mary would be the first to argue that. She says so in this verse. Um, and, and this is kind of a difficult thing to balance with the Catholic doctrine of immaculate conception that believes that Mary was born without original sin from uh, her mother, uh, Anne. Um, but only imperfect people need a Savior. And Mary, again, she would agree with that. And as, as we skip ahead to verse 49, it says that she, she says that God is the Holy One. Again, just, it's just a repeat here. It's, it, Mary isn't the Holy One. Christ is the Holy One. In fact, she probably, Mary was familiar with Isaiah 40, Isaiah 43, 11, which says this, I, even I, am the Lord. And apart from me, there is no Savior. 
Another thing that we should pay attention to is from Luke 11, uh, verses 27 and 28. It says this, As Jesus said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast in which you sucked. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Essentially what Christ is saying here is, Mary doesn't get a free pass because she's my mom. She, she, you know, and for us today, like perfect, perfect, perfect church attendance um, isn't what gives us salvation. Living moral lives isn't what gives us salvation. It's becoming a disciple of him, a follower of him, taking him at his worst, trusting him, following him. Mary's salvation came not from birthing and bearing the Christ child. Uh, Mary's salvation came from believing in Christ as her means of grace. And I was thinking of this week as I was preparing this sermon, I was struck with the fact that Mary, uh, man, she is a woman who, uh, you have to think of it from this perspective. Every, every child comes into the world completely dependent on their parents. They, they need their parents for nourishment, for shelter, for clothing, for love. Every child is born with, it, with an innate need and, and desperation for care from their parents. They won't make it without their parents. I believe Mary here is actually the first uh, parent in the entire world who's completely, completely dependent on their child. Mary is completely dependent on her child as her salvation. What a crazy thought and something very much for us to meditate on today. As, as 1 Timothy 2.5 says as well, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, and that, that man is Christ Jesus. Now as we return to Mary's song here, we find this transition that takes place from her celebrating what God has done for her personally to what God has done around the world, what God has done for all, what God has done for those who, who trust and believe in him. 49 and 50 says this, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. While Mary knows that God has been good to her, she also knows that his goodness is not just limited to her. Uh, because mostly anyone in this room today and, and the millions of generations, past, present, and future, could say the same thing about God's mercy for them. Because at the end of the day, her eye isn't on herself, but it's on the constancy of God. The mag this Magnificat is not necessarily an explanation of, of who God is, but rather what he does. God rescues. He remembers. He compassions. He saves. He visits his people and he restores. That's who God is. That's what he does. Uh, biblical scholar James Edwards referred, refers to the math, Magnificat as this. The, F, the essence of the Magnificat does not consist in its particular language or figures of speech, but in its revolutionary blueprint of divine favor. It is a hymn not of the proud, but of the powerless. Not of just deserts, but of unexpected grace. Not of a world fully controlled and determined by human powers, but overturned by divine comedy. God is the subject of nearly every verb, and the verbs are all transitive. They do not declare who God is, but what God does as the powerful deliverer of the needy and the oppressed. 
God does not turn away from want and oppression, but toward both in compassion and rescuing intervention. In most religions, a meeting with God requires the low to ascend high, for sinners to become saints. The Magnificat reverses all protocol and expectations. God, who is high, becomes low. He sees human need and initiates a revolution that reorders reality. The transcendent God intercedes on behalf of a lowly young woman and calls her blessed. The Almighty gives mercy to those who fear him and scatters the strong, the proud, and the rich, while filling the hungry and the needy with all good things. Let me just say again, Mary is more than a compliant womb. She is someone who, though very young, knows the character of God. She knows God. She has spent time with him. She knows his heart. And she knows that he's about to turn the world upside down through her son, through her child. Mary then goes on to sing the rest, the final portion of the Magnificat here. Verses 51 onward. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. As we move into this final section of the Magnificat, it's important that we ask ourselves as well this question, are we aware of God's handiwork in the world? Are we aware of what God is up to? Are we paying attention are we praying for his kingdom to not just be in heaven, but on earth as well? What does that look like? You know, you're probably reminded of, Luke's, uh, of Luke 4, where, where Jesus un- unrolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and, and, says, and reads those words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But also his kingdom on earth as as it is in heaven is that the poor are lifted up and that the rich find the insecurity in their wealth. That the humble are promoted and the prideful and self-reliant are demoted. And that the powerful recognize that they are powerless under the mighty hand of God. This can be really a challenging passage to get through because it is offensive. It's offensive to the rich. It's offensive to the self-reliant and it's offensive to the powerful. In this moment in time, we see the beginning of this upside-down kingdom taking place because we see Zechariah himself. He's, he's in the center of the temple complex. He's the priest in God's temple. And it, it shows that he proves faithless. Um, he, he doesn't trust in the word of God. And Mary, this peasant servant child, and, and Elizabeth, who was barren and kind of cast aside, we see, what do we see here? We see that they're the ones walking in complete trust in God. And they're walking, they're, they're speaking with a prophet's voice here. We see this upside-down upside down kingdom beginning to take shape. And Mary knows here that the winds of God's grace are on the move. Things are changing here. And how will the world respond to that offer of grace. How will you respond to his offer of grace? Because as you know, the same wind that takes a sailboat takes it to its destination. That same wind can crash, uh, can, uh, that, that gush of wind can gush it and uh, send it crashing onto the rocks and sinking the ship. The mighty winds of his grace are on the move. How will humanity respond? Will they receive it or will they reject it? 
his offer of mercy for their lives. Because if you respond to God with humility and fear, you're going to find mercy upon mercy, forgiveness upon forgiveness, grace upon grace. But if you respond with ridicule, apathy, pride, you're going to find yourself crashed and dashed upon the rocks. So how do we respond to this passage, especially this end of this passage as a church, but also individually? How can we apply it to our lives? Um, as a church, we must understand that Jesus's uh, holistic mission, which is outlined here in the Magnificat, was it to save sinners? Absolutely, no doubt about that. But also it was to revolutionize society. It was for us to point ahead to the promised time when God is going to make all things right once more. The early church, we see, is going to be rich in good deeds. They embody a ministry of social righteousness. They share their wealth. They insist that faith show itself in caring for others. Deacons were established to, to coordinate deed ministries for the poor, both inside and outside the church. I'm so excited about the, the future of Village East, where they're about to begin the process of appointing deacons in the months ahead. The early church gave poor gave the poor a marginalized a place at the table. They exalted society's low, lowest members. The church raised the position of women, slaves. Um, they helped free slaves. They preserved the dignity of the poor. As a church, we should look for ways to work with God and be his hands and feet, both in our community and around the world. Now, as individuals, how do, how do we respond to this, this passage here? Firstly, as followers of Christ, we must ask ourselves, uh, why when the scriptures are so completely full uh, from beginning to end about caring for the poor, the needy, the refugee, the immigrant, the widow, why are we okay for the most part with walking through life and ignoring those people? If God is so concerned with these groups, why do we typically seem so unconcerned? Um, it's something that we need to think on and repent of as a people of God. Uh, the gospel of grace is always going to lift up and dignify the poor. Because the world is going to say to the poor, hey, you lack education, you lack funding, you lack upward mobility, you, uh, you lack uh, a network, you lack connections, you can't even provide for your children. You're not worth any importance. Uh, religion will come along and say, um, you know, good people, people with character, those are the people who are going to find God. And if you don't have morals, if you don't have character, then you're not going to find God in the process. But the gospel, Christianity comes along and says that supernatural, uh, the, the supernatural act of grace is upon us, and that's how we receive salvation. The gospel says that good people, the decent people, the moral people, that the rich, the ones with upward mobility, the, one with, uh, the ones with connections, they're every bit as lost as the murderers, the drug dealers, the prostitutes, and the pimps. And if you are a drug dealer, if you are a murderer, a prostitute, or a pimp, and you put your faith in Christ, guess what? You get a seat beside Christ at his table in heaven. And that lifts up the poor. It's going to lift them up because their security is found in Christ. Their identity is found in him rather than the class that they belong to, rather than the wealth that they've accumulated, rather than the neighborhood that they reside in, and the sin that they commit. But at the same time, the gospel pulls down the rich because the gospel shows the poor that they're no worse than anyone else, but it also shows the rich they're no better than anyone else. 
So firstly, we must change the way we think about the poor, the needy, from a, from a Jesus kingdom perspective. Let us think of ways to work individually and as a church for the least of these in our communities. It's not progressive for us to do works of social justice. It's biblical for us to do that. And secondly, we, must, we have to have a response to this upside-down kingdom that God has created through Christ Jesus. And we must approach it with fresh humility because this gospel message, this good news, is not, just that, is not that the good people get in and the bad people are kept out. Truly, the good news is that those who know that they are bad get in and that the ones who think that they're good don't. That's the upside-down kingdom because it's only possible once we have an understanding of who Christ is, his work on the cross, his raising from the dead. As we put our trust and faith in him, that is how we have a relationship with God, knowing that he died for us for our sins. He died for our sakes. We know that, that because of our sin, he died on that cross. And as a gift to us, he gives us a free offer of grace of salvation to forgive us. He gives us mercy upon mercy, and he, and he asks us to trust him. He asks us to follow him for the rest of our lives. Friend, if that's you, if, if maybe you've made a, uh, you're, you, you would not call yourself a follower of Jesus, and that's the offer of grace that Christ gives you. He offers you that gift of salvation here today. We want to extend that to you. Um, this morning. We're going to go ahead and pray at this time, though. Um, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for uh, thank you for this church. Thank you for their patience as we um, have to kind of go through this experience all together. Uh, but Lord, we also, I repent for uh, just, I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm, I, I live among a people of unclean lips, Lord. Forgive us uh, for against all the ways that we sin against you. We do things with arrogance and pride. We lack humility. Um, Jesus, we don't, I don't praise you enough for what you have done um, in my life. You have saved uh, us from death by your work on the cross. And God, I just ask that you help us to trust you. Lord, we, we know that uh, one of the things that happens uh, through our trust in you is that we become dual citizens. We're citizens here on earth, but we're also citizens of a, of a heavenly kingdom. Lord, help us to have heavenly eyes. Give us an eternal kingdom perspective. Help us to see what you're up to. And Lord, I just I repent of, of all the ways which I have not cared for the needy, cared for the poor, where I have done things my own way and just tried to ignore and just put, put those people aside. Lord, I repent of that. I pray as a church, Lord, we repent of that as a church. Help us to become a people of praise. Help us to honor you with our lips. Help us to honor you with our words. Uh, both to uh, the believers, help us to encourage the believers right beside us, but also to the entire unbelieving world. Let us to uh, just be salt and light to them, Lord, I pray. Thank you for bringing us peace today through Christ your Son, um, which was hard fought for at the cross, Lord. We just thank you for that today. Amen. Uh, today, we just bless you. Um, just uh, just ask that you this week, just ponder on these words from, from Mary's, Mary's song here. It's a beautiful section of Scripture that speaks so much to the character and goodness of God. I uh, pray for you this week, and uh, we just ask that you be blessed. Have a good day.